welcome. Yeah, it is. That it is. That's my music. You hear it. It's time for another episode of the Kick It Straight Podcast with Jermaine. This is part two of the Color A Compromise book review. As we delve into some more of the church's complicity with racism and slavery and even the church's complicity with the ongoing uh, evil dynamic of race. Um, what blacks have, African Americans have achieved through the civil rights victories was not total freedom. They achieved what Joy DeGruy would reference as the delusion of inclusion. And we're going to get into that in our next episode. But I have to answer a question that I got over um, an email. And even on one of my Twitter followers, they said, um, why must you always talk about the church and what the church has done and not done? Say, because what you feel to realize is this. The church is the greatest faith network or faith paradigm on the face of the earth. So when people stamp the Trinity, God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit's name on something, that carries more weight than any other faith network. Whether it be the Baha'i faith, the Mormon faith, the Jehovah Witness faith, the Muslim faith, and there's many branches. But when you say Jesus and God ordained this, and the Bible says this, or the scriptures don't say anything against this, you're putting what you believe to be the creator, intellect, who made the earth and the world as we see it, you seeing that God ordained the racial animus we have between black and white Christians. And so that's why I must talk about it. As Martin Luther King Jr. one time was answering some question like why he always talking about America, he says, because I'm just trying to make America honor what she said on paper in the Declaration of Independence. <clears throat> and I'm the same way. I just want the church to honor what they what they think they preaching out the Bible. <clears throat> I just want them to uh, understand that a lot of what these white evangelicals say or don't say in their complicity is um, complicity with racism and that you're basically doing white evangelicals basically dishonor the word of God and they dishonor the church but the fact of the matter white evangelicals cater to a section of people who cannot think properly it's allowed to grow on and go on so let's get into the book uh, on page 33 he starts talking about the African slave trade in America in, in deeper detail. And he says, uh, the British colonists had not requested slaves, but the Dutch ship had stolen the Africans from a Portuguese slave trading ship called St. John the Baptist and were looking for a place to sell their cargo. As historian Gregory O'Malley explains, the arrival of African captives had less to do with planters' demand for enslaved laborers than with the privateer's desire for a market in which to vend stolen Africans. Prior to the arrival of Africans in the British colony of Virginia, 
Europeans have been transporting enslaved Africans to the Americas for more than 800 years. Haiti and Jamaica, as well as South American countries such as Brazil, use millions of Africans to work on farms producing rice, sugar, and coffee. In fact, these other regions received far more enslaved persons than North America ever did. An estimated 10 to 12 million slaves was bought across the Atlantic, and the majority ended up in the Caribbean or South America. Then he steps down, he says, the Haitian Revolution broke out in 1791, and its success was due, in part, to the population discrepancy between enslaved Africans and enslaved landowners. Let me just stop here and talk about the Haitian Revolution. Well, um, well, El Saint O Overture. This is the only revolution you don't hear a whole lot about in the American church, of course, black or white. And this is the only revolution you don't hear about in American educational processes. And you know why? Because this is the only successful uh, time in history where black folk rose up and slaughtered and killed their white uh, oppressors and enslavers on a large scale. So they don't want you to hear about that. This was the one that's at the Haiti basically gained their freedom through the bloodshed and the murder of white evilness because it was a colonized country with black bodies being the foundation of that colonized country, right? So that's why you don't hear too much about the Haitian Revolution and all that took place over there. Um, And then on page 34... He says, by the mid-17th century, some Africans lived as free people and worked in a variety of professions. A few, like Anthony Johnson, became wealthy enough to own land and to buy enslaved Africans themselves. The life of an indentured servant was not not a desirable one, but it was not always permanent, nor was it limited to Africans. Indigenous people and Europeans could become indentured servants also. Although many Africans arrived as enslaved persons, colonists sometimes permitted them certain rights, such as earning their own money, purchasing their own family's freedom, and learning skilled trades. Edmund Morgan writes, while racial feelings undoubtedly affected the position of Negroes, there is more than a little evidence that Virginians during, during those years were ready to think of Negroes as members of potential, members of the community, on the same terms as other men and to demand of them the same standards and behavior. As Morgan indicates, colonists may have initially seen Africans in America as laborers just like any other and patterned their economy and politics to allow for their full inclusion. American history could have happened another way. End quote. Instead, racist attitudes and the pursuit of wealth increasingly relegated black people to a position of perpetual servitude and exploitation. That was Jamal Tisby. And so, at one point in time, they was going to, or they was trying to move into, if you want to say progressive era, where they didn't see Africans as totally <clears throat> vessels of laboring, but maybe as a part of humanity. But as Morgan writes out, their um, racist attitude prevented them from going all the way in and as Jamal Tizzi points out the pursuit of wealth 
basically increased Africans' stature of indentured servitude, okay? Um, he goes on to say, the shift towards slavery over indentured servitude happened gradually over the last few decades of the 17th century. Conflicts such as Bacon's Rebellion had alerted the Virginia gentry to the ongoing threat of a disgruntled population of white indentured servants and African laborers. Much of the transition to slavery, though, had economic roots. In the early days of colonization, Europeans and African mortality rates were both extremely high. The chance of financially feasible to use indentured servants rather than the slave persons who had a higher upfront cost. As life expectancy increased, lifelong labor became a more lucrative investment. Tobacco, the most profitable crop in Virginia at that time, required less capital and less punishing labor than producing a commodity such as sugar, which was popular in the West Indies and parts of South America. Enslaved men and women thus lived longer, making lifetime bondage even more attractive. A scarcity of labor also led to slavery. Few Europeans were moving to the colonies and indigenous population continued to decrease. Wealthy colonists looked to imported Africans as a steady supply of labor. Okay, drop down. The slave codes also define enslaved Africans, not as human beings, but as chattel, private property on the same level as livestock. So what we see now is a further process of dehumanizing of black people and when he talks about the slave codes he talks about the slave codes which is a group of codes that the slaves had to live by to cement their bondage and then uh, on page 36 he says in the baptism of the early modern Virginia historian Rebecca Ann Goats explains how Europeans on the Atlantic coast of North America developed religious and racial categories in tandem. At first, colonists debated whether Africans was capable of becoming Christians. They adhered to a concept that Goats calls hereditary heathenism. Just as parents passed on physical characteristics to their children, they also passed on their religion. Hereditary heathenism tethered race to religion. From the earliest days of North America, colonists employed religious cultural categories to signify that Europeans meant Christian and Native American or African meant heathen. Over time, these categories simplified and hardened into racial designations. <clears throat> Very poignant passage right there. And, and this even happens today when you get to white missionaries going to African countries to so-called evangelize when we have more than one example where when white missionaries go to black countries, they're not going to evangelize human beings. They're going to evangelize African savages. And you know why that's still today? Because once the institution such as the church is complicit in the most evil atrocity Human <clears throat> the human slave trade if there is not a large voice collectively that denounces it collectively and breaks away from it collectively in all of its branches you will never ever stop the complicity of racism and the reason the church 
is uh, has such a troublesome um, place in the minds of a lot of black folk, especially in this day and time, is because of this very thing. Uh, I, I, I used to see it all the time when I first became a Christian where these racist white Christian mission boards to send these white people to Africa and to uh, places you know they would never normally go as a white person, right? But now they become Christian, they got this so-called humanity about themselves. Uh, now they want to go to Africa and try to evangelize people. And what America don't tell you is there have been some cases where it didn't work out for the white Christian missionaries' benefit. And I will go into some of those failed attempts later down the road. And it's not to bring out that I don't like evangelization. What I don't like is when white people try to evangelize black folk and they have a superior mind state. They have a, our gospel is the best gospel. You are a savage. Um, so you need this to become unsavage. And this is why and I spoke not to a lot, but I have spoken to some Native Americans, especially the ones in Washington, D.C., at the uh, Native American Museum, <clears throat> which is a very interesting museum. Uh, I asked one of the curators of the museum, how come uh, Native Americans reject Christianity off the, off the rip? And she basically told me it was because the white missionary hypocrisy <clears throat> and she said, also, their people could never, ever become a part of what helped tear their culture, tear their people apart. You see, uh, complicity of racism is also, not only is it silence, but it's also not telling the truth. You know, when I hear white Christians say stuff like, well, they just don't want to go to heaven or they just don't want to be free from sin. No, it goes deeper than that. And the deeper part of Native Americans and other black folk turning down your so-called pure gospel that can make them unsavage is because white missionaries and the white church has a very evil history of bad deeds in the name of the Trinity. And until that's dealt with, these books are going to continue to be written. These podcasts are going to continue to be podcasted. And that's just the reality we have. I didn't create it, but we are parts of it. Okay. So now, back to the book. He goes, say, Tisby, many Europeans initially held an optimistic view of their capacity to convert the indigenous people to Christianity. These Christians adhere to a monogenesis theory of humankind, meaning they believe that all people descended from Adam as described in Genesis. So according to European Christians, indigenous people had at least the potential to receive salvation, which meant colonists had a duty to teach the scripture to these so-called heathens. Okay, um, then we're going to go down on page 37. He's still talking about the indigenous people. He says, of course, most indigenous people did not see white Christians in a good light. European missionaries made few converts because converting to Christianity included European cultural assimilation and the loss of tribal identity. Native Americans still talk about that. 
because Europeans thought Africans like indigenous people could be civilized through cultural conformity and conversion to Christianity. European missionaries such as the Franciscans, the Franciscans and the Dominicans attempted to preach Christianity to the slaves. It must be noted, however, Europeans did not introduce Christianity to Africans. Okay, let's get that straight right now. And I be trying to tell my white friends this all the time. It must be noted, however, that Europeans did not introduce Christianity to Africans. Christianity had arrived in Africa through Egypt and Ethiopia in the 3rd and 4th century. Christian luminaries like Augustine, Tertullian, Athenians helped develop Trinitarian theology and defended, and defended the deity of Christ long before Western Europeans presumed to take Christianity to Africans. African people also had a rich history of practicing Islam and tribal religions. A history that Europeans disregarded in their evangelistic fervor. Even though European missionaries sought to share Christianity with indigenous people and Africans, social, political, and economic equality was not part of their plan. Missionaries carefully crafted messages that maintained the social and economic status quo. They truncated the gospel message by failing to confront slavery, and in so doing, they reinforced its grip on society. Okay, uh, then he talks about the 1701 Anglican Church leader Thomas Bray, who helped find the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts. This he says, Tisby. Instead, the SPG, like many European missionary endeavors in North America, preached a message that said Christianity could save one's soul but not break one's chains. <sighs> I could rattle off. Five scriptures off the top of my head if I wanted to, but I'm not. That talks about that Jesus and that message comes to break one's chains. Whether that be your sinful chains and even your physical chains. So it's always interesting to me that, again, the evangelical church likes to gloss over this. This is just not some angry black man rant. This is documented history. This is documented truth. Right? Then he goes on to talk about how the SPG's missionary, Francis Lee Jaw, illustrates the philosophy of evangelism well. The SPG sent him to South Carolina in 1706, where he stayed until his death in 1717. His journal entries from the time show his sincere desire to convert indigenous people and Africans. He even spoke out against British exploitation of the indigenous population. However, he curbed his outrage had limits. It always does. To circumvent slave owners' opposition, the Jew emphasized obedience instead of liberation among the slaves. And I hear not in those words. I had people saying, well, you know, Jermaine, this world is transitory, or they'll say stuff like, well, everybody suffers until they go to heaven. Well, you know, that's just not good thinking when you say stuff like that. And so, again, white evangelical preachers, most of the time we talk about slavery and racism. When I hear white evangelical preachers, and not all, but I'm going to say 95% of them, it's like, okay, once again, I know where you're coming from. 
I know everything I need to know about you on a social, racial level. And just let me say something about Christianity. No matter how you feel about it, the Achilles heel of Christianity is the black man and the race problem. That's the Achilles heel of Christianity. And like I said, my last podcast is not going to change until the church gives as much fervent rhetoric or sermons to the issue of racism and slavery as they do abortion and homosexuality. And Tisby even talks about the hypocrisy in that, which I've always thought was hypocritical. For white Christians who want to talk about abortion, 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 you make an idol out of the baby, the unborn baby in the womb, but you care nothing about the baby outside the womb. I've always said they they make an idol out of abortion. I don't know how many sermons I heard of abortion and homosexuality and had nothing about racism. But yet these people think they're preaching the gospel, which is very hypocritical. Tisby goes on page 39. Europeans crafted a Christianity that will allow them to spread the faith while confronting the exploitive economic system of slavery and the emerging social inequality based on color. Then he uh, goes on ahead titled Deconstructing Race. This chapter began with the premise that race was constructed. It has been shown how in the wet semen, in the early parts of early European colonial society, the racial boundaries had not yet been traced. It took decades for patterns of unfree labor to harden into a form of slavery that treated human beings as chattel and dictated a person's station in life based on skin color. In European North America, Christianity became identified with the emerging concept of whiteness, while people of color, including indigenous people and Africans, became identified with unbelief. Okay, so he indulges that a little bit, then he steps down. The fierce urgency of now, okay, to borrow a phrase from Martin Luther King Jr. demands a recognition of the ways Christians from before the founding of the United States build racial categories into knowledge, into religion. The fierce urgency of now, as he says, to borrow a phrase from Martin Luther King Jr. demands a recognition of the ways Christians from before the founding of the United States build racial categories into religion. That knowledge must be turned toward propagating a more authentically biblical message that human equality regardless of skin color. Okay. Going on to chapter 3 under the title Understanding Liberty in the Age of Revolution and Revival. Declaration of War for Independence. English philosopher John Locke was raised by Puritan parents who instructed him in the Christian faith and taught him about the natural rights of humankind. He published an explanation of his political philosophy in 1689, works entitled Two Trespasses of Government. In it, he wrote that natural law teaches all mankind who will be to consult it that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty or possessions for men being all the workmanship of one omnipotent and infinitely wise maker they are his property nearly a century later Thomas Jefferson picked up on Locke's language and wrote about the inalienable rights of human beings when 
he penned the Declaration of Independence. According to Locke, the two trespasses of government, the government exists by the consent of the people. If the people determine that the laws of a commonwealth are contrary to their interests, then the consent they have given to political officials must necessarily be forfeited and the power devolved into the hands of those that gave it, who may place it anew, but they shall think best of their safety and security. Colonists in America will soon adopt this political philosophy to justify the rebellion against the British government. Okay. Uh, page 42, he says, The Declaration of Independence, first drafted by a slaveholder named Thomas Jefferson, captured the spirit of the revolution in its opening words we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness yet jefferson as with so many of his day did not consider black people equal to white people few political leaders assumed the noble words of the declaration applied to the enslaved A draft, a draft of the document denounced the transatlantic slave trade by accusing the British monarch of violating his most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. The anti-slavery cause was excised from the final draft of the declaration due to objections of the delegates from Georgia and South Carolina as well as some northern states that benefited from slavery. Very interesting. Okay, then under the Great Awakening, the Great Awakening held both promise and contradiction. When it came to, <coughs> when it came to the African population in the colonies, prior to the revivals of the mid-1700s, few enslaved Africans converted to Christianity White enslavers feared that evangelizing would plant the troublesome seeds of liberation in the minds and hearts of the chattel. But Africans did not come to American colonies devoid of spirituality. Many of them practiced the indigenous religions of tribes in West Africa, and a significant number were Muslim. Africans preferred their own forms of faith to what to that of their white enslavers. Again. Many of them practiced the indigenous religions of tribes in West Africa, and a significant number were Muslim. Africans preferred their own forms of faith to that of their white enslavers. Uh, in the decades leading up to the American War for Independence, another revolution taking place. The Great Awakening fundamentally altered the shape of Protestantism in the colonies and among African slaves. Influenced by the Englishman's, the Enlightenment's emphasis on experience as the ground of knowledge, evangelists during the, the Great Awakening highlighted the necessity of a personal encounter with God and the role of emotion in the Christian faith. Historian Alan Gallet described it this way, The driving goal of evangelical ministers was to spread the message of new birth while combating those who assumed that grace was achieved gradually and by good works, end quote. In contrast to more staid forms of worship practiced by Angelicans, Dutch Reformed, Congregations, and Presbyterian churches, 
the Great Awakening moved the American Christians toward more informal and less structured forms of worship. Okay, let's skip down some more. Enslaved Africans did not nearly adopt Christianity, they made it their own. Aspects of the faith, such as the notion of rebirth, baptism, immersion in water, and emotional expressiveness resemble African traditions. For example, enslaved people in the South adopted a practice from West Africans known as the ring shout. I witnessed this. Worshippers got in a circle and rotated counterclockwise as they sang, danced, and chanted. Okay, so he delves into that a little bit deeper. Then he goes on to talk about in, 19, in 1785, Lemuel Hayes became the first black person ordained by any Christian fellowship in America. Prior to his career in ministry, Hayes fought in the Revolutionary War. After his conversion, he sensed a call to ministry and became a Calvinistic preacher in the Northeast. He drew much of his theological convictions from the teaching of John Edwards and George Whitfield. A dedicated preacher, Hayes said, nothing is more conducive of divine glory and salutary to men than preaching of the gospel. Unless these glad tidings are proclaimed, the incarnation of Christ is in vain. Like, likely, biracial, Haynes nevertheless pastored an all-white church in Vermont. Uh, black people were attracted to revival preaching because it mirrored the familiar practices of West African religions. Full-throated singing, emotional expressiveness, physical movement had cultural resonance with people of African descent. Christianity also held out the hope of freedom. Enslaved people connected spiritual salvation with earthly liberation. They believed that spiritual equality might lead the white slave owners to see them as full human beings deserving of emancipation. Okay. Slave owners still frowned upon Christianizing the enslaved. Black ministers were usually only allowed to preach to black people. The messages preached to black Christians leaned heavily toward messages on obedience and honoring one's earthly master. Only rarely would the enslaved be permitted to congregate on their own for fear that they would use the meetings to plot rebellion. As some has done. And we know about one of the most famous um, rebellions. So then he goes on, on page 46, and he starts to talk about the um, Stono Rebellion. He says, as a result of the Stono Rebellion, South Carolina passed the Negro Act of 1740, the act which largely reiterated laws that had already been passed but not strictly enforced prevented the enslaved from assembling in groups without white supervision, selling their own goods for profit or leaning to learning to write. The Negro Act also purported to restrain and prevent barbarity being exercised towards slaves because cruelty is highly unbecoming those who profess themselves Christians. As a result, the act mandated whippings on the back for recalcitrant stray slaves. But any slave owner who cut out the tongue, put out the eye, castrated, or burned a slave would have to pay a fine. Because of laws like the Negro Act, it became increasingly difficult for enslaved people to gather. And you're going to always notice one thing about me. I, I always say that nothing happens in a vacuum, number one. 
And number two, there's always a foundation. There's always a starting point, a through line. And much of, if not all, but much of black people's current problems today has its foundation or starting point or through line in slavery and dealing with the white church, taking the so-called white gospel to Africa to to evangelize these so-called black savages. When you read passages like that, you hear passages like this. Sometimes, when I look at stuff like this, I understand my experience has been black people in church at times are still fighting for their independence in the face of white complicity of Christianity. We still find it at times hard to gather without being a part of some white major denomination. Now, there are those exceptions to the rule like the AME Church and the African Methodist Episcopal Catholic Church. You got some very um, black Baptist denominations, right? Uh, Kojic, the Church of God in Christ is all, not all, but is predominantly a black denomination of Christianity, right? Which is very huge. The United Church of Christ, another basically black denomination. So when we look at this, we have to say, well, how did the church become so fractured? How did the the church become so split along racial lines? And they became so split among racial lines because of everything I have read to you and everything Jamal Tisby has written in research, right? Nothing just happens. And the simple answer that some Christians want to give, oh, it's man's sinfulness. Well, that's first grade. That's just first grade. You have to get past that. You have to go deeper than just saying, oh, it's man's sinfulness. Because when you say that, you get white people off the hook. You get white churches off the hook. You get white denominations off the hook. And they still deserve to be on that hook. Until there is a clean break collectively, which there isn't. Okay? Um, Before I end... I want to deal with his section of the book where he starts dealing with uh, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, okay? More than any other two preachers, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards symbolized the spiritual revival that took place in the 18th century. Whitfield, an angelical minister from England who was influenced by John West, became what historian Harry Stout called the first intercolonial religious celebrity. He usually preached outside because the throngs who gathered to him were too large for any church building. Whitfield had been trained in theater and used his experience in drama to captivate his listeners, modern-day TV Jakes. Most preachers at the time read highly doctrinal sermons from a manuscript. Whitfield's theatrical narrations appealed to emotions in a way that established Christian leaders usually frowned upon. The dynamic preaching of revivalists during the Great Awakening broadened its appeal to include the lower economic class of whites and the enslaved. 
Whitfield was more moderate on race than many of his white contemporaries. He excoriated enslavers for the physical abuse of slaves, calling them monsters of barbarity. He expressed ambulance about the practice of slavery itself, but he had no doubts about how masters should treat their laborers. Unsure of whether it be lawful for Christians to buy slaves, Whitfield was positive that it is sinful when bought to use them as though they were brutes. The worst abuse in Whitfield's view was some enslavers refusal to allow the enslaved to be evangelized. He and others like his wealthy, slave-holding Christian allies, Hugh and Jonathan Bryan, advocated <clears throat> for the rights of the enslaved people to learn Christianity and to worship. Over time, Whitfield's moderation on slavery morphed into outright support. In 1732, Georgia became the last of the original 13 colonies and founders envisioned it as a Christian utopia where European inhabitants would have freedom of conscience when it came to religion. In line with his vision, James Oglethorpe, the colony's administrator, determined that Georgia would be a slave-free region. Oglethorpe and his supporters were not concerned with abolition, however. They simply wanted Georgia to be settlement where poor Englishmen could labor without competition. Okay. Faced with the vicissitudes of starting a nonprofit organization and as soon as financial viability, Whitfield looked to slavery to secure Bethesda's welfare. Bethesda was an organization he had founded. He turned to the wealthy allies he had gained on his revival in South Carolina for support. Helping his friends in Charleston, Whitfield purchased a 640-acre plantation and planned to use the profit from the crops produced to support the work of the orphanage. Whitfield was virtually guaranteed a profit from his plantation activities because he did not plan to pay his laborers. One Negro has given me, he wrote in a letter, some more I plan to purchase this week. Whitfield began petitioning the political leaders of Georgia, which had been founded as a free territory to allow slavery. He suggested that allowing slavery would improve the financial fortunes of the land and claimed that economic ruin was the only alternative Georgia can never be a flourishing province unless Negroes are employed as slaves. Historian Stephen J. Stein insists that financial concerns only partially explains Whitfield's advocacy of slavery. The focus upon contrast and change in his ideas, which has dominated discussion to date, obscures a more significant feature of his thought, namely his deep-seated fear of the blacks. The economic impulse for slavery can never be separated from the racist ideas that typecast enslaved Africans as dangerous and brutish. Whitfield and countless other white Christians embibbed beliefs that encourage fear and suspicion of African descended people. He would I mean, that's just major. And it's very interesting that white evangelicals in their complicity today and their hypocrisy always want to bang on Martin Luther King and all them freaky white women on the road. But they don't want to talk about George Whitfield. They keep that, they try to wrap that undercover. You see what I'm saying? They try to brush that down their little sewer. And uh, very interesting. He's going to say, a few months after the Stono Rebellion in September of 1739, Whitfield and a party of campaigns made their way through South Carolina. On a dark and moonless night, they stumbled across a group of enslaved black people. One of Whitfield's campaigns asked for direction to the gentleman's house, 
whither we will be directed. But the group of blacks seemed not to know the person or the location of his home. From these circumstances, one of my friends inferred that these Negroes might be of those who lately had made an insurrection in the province and were run away from their masters. After that, Whitfield party quickened their peace fearfully, expecting to find Negroes in every place. Virtually any gathering of black people, even when black Christians congregated for worship, was likely to arouse suspicion and fear. Interesting. Now, moving on to Jonathan Edwards. White evangelicals love Jonathan Edwards. Let them tell it he was the most brilliant Christian ever. Let them tell it he was the most greatest intellectual, philosophical, doctrinal mind that the church has ever produced. And uh, some of that is 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 is, 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 is right there, right? Um, some of his known works are Sinners in the Hands of Anger God, which I read. Uh, Religious Affections, which is a real deep book. And uh, Charity and His Fruits is another deep one. So he was, he, he Jonathan Edwards did have a great mind when dealing with Christian doctrine. And when even dealing on the surface, the practice of the Christian life. I'm not going to go through his education, but if you ever go back and read his education, uh, you'll find out that the guy was, he, he was definitely brilliant. He was definitely brilliant. Uh, so skip down in the middle of the section on Edwards. Tisby says, although Edwards remains a significant figure in American religious history, his significance must also include the fact that he compromised Christian principles by enslaving human beings. By 1731, Edwards had purchased his first enslaved Africans, Venus, at an auction in Rhode Island. Throughout his lifetime, he owned several other people, including Joseph Lee, a young boy named Titus. Edward's slaveholding speaks for itself, but an unpublished manuscript provides the only written record of Edward directly addressing his views on slavery. Historian Kenneth McKema unearthed Edward's notes for a letter that appears to defend a slave-owning pastor from his critical parishioners. <clears throat> the notes merely sketch an argument. Edwards did oppose the African slave trade for evangelistic reasons, knowing that it would make Africans more resistant to the gospel. But he never objected to slavery in general. The theologians seemed to accept slavery, so as long as masters treated their enslaved persons with dignity on the basis of slavery's apparently tacit acceptance in the Bible. Edwards did not believe, as some Christians did, that enslaved Africans did not have souls or could not accept Christ. He advocated for evangelism among the enslaved and dreamed of a global flowering of faith. Wow. Why did Jonathan Edwards support slavery? In part, the answer <clears throat> may have to do with his social status. Edwards represented and educated an elite class in New England society. Wealthy and influential people populated his congregation. Slave owning signified status. More deeply, though, the particular brand of evangelicalism developing in America during the Great Awakening made an anti slavery stance unlikely for many. Mark Knoll explains As a revival moment, evangelicalism transformed people within their inherited social settings, but worked only partial and selective transformation on the social settings themselves. End quote. Evangelicalism 
focused on individual conversion and piety, within this evangelical framework, one could adopt an evangelical expression of Christianity, yet remain uncompelled to confront institutional injustice. And that's what we have today. This last line. Within the framework, evangelical, one could adopt an evangelical expression of Christianity, yet remain uncompelled to confront institutional injustice. This starting point of Jonathan Edwards still permeates the white evangelical church today. Ironically, Edwards' second son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., more fully grasped the revolutionary application of his Christianity. A pastor himself, Jonathan Edwards, had gone up around Mohican and Mohawk tribes and spoke their language better than English as a boy. Beginning in the 1770s, Edwards became an outspoken abolitionist. For instance, he wrote an article titled Some Observations Upon the Slavery of Negroes. In 1791, preached a sermon called Injustice and Policy of the Slave Trade. Edward Jr.'s impact, however, would not come too near his father's, nor could the son's outspokenness about slavery drown out his father's conspicuous silence and support of the institution. Harrison Whitfield represents a supposedly moderate and widespread view of slavery. Both accepted the spiritual equality of black and white people, both preached the message of salvation to all, yet their concern for African slaves did not extend to advocating for physical emancipation. Like those two preachers, many other Christians did not see anything in the Bible that forbade slavery. In fact, the scriptures seem to accept slavery as an established reality. Instead, White Christians believe that the Bible merely regulated slavery in order to mitigate this more brutal abuses. End quote, Jamar I'm going to stop right there. <sighs> As you can see, some things in this book is hard to understand, not understand, but just grasp with a Christian mind. You look back. You say, how could this have taken place? This is how it takes place. When you have the passion to grow your economics and you see a pet that can be used and treated and worked to achieve your end goal, which is money to grow your country and you stamp God's name on it. And you have people like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards that hangs in the that way in the balance and they act like a seesaw halfway up and halfway down on the race issue. Well, sometimes like Edwards all in on the slavery issue. And that's never talked about. However, this is what happens in complicity. And this is what happens in the white church. Don't understand. Because the white church reverenced Jonathan Edwards and his theological genius and George Whitfield's orphanage for kids, you overlook their slavery and their racial animus toward blacks. However, Martin Luther King Jr., the American black Christian Moses whored around when he was on the road. He smoked cigarettes. He may have been a he may have been a Marxist at the end of his life. 
who cares? You will beat him down, white Christians, but say nothing about your two white heroes who were probably two of the biggest hypocrites. And black folk who know this, that's why they don't want to come to your churches, white people. And that's why, one of the reasons why, the white church, even though I have some white friends who think we're going to have this black, white, huge um, kumbaya picnic, that's never going to happen. Black people never inundate your churches on a large scale. Only trickles here and there. And only because you are the sons and daughters of a legacy that used the scriptures to justify slavery and racism. And today, you are complicit because you say nothing about what's going on with black people today. You take your heroes, you raise them up and you quote them. And you preach sermons on their birthday or whatever, on their death day or whatever, about how great they were when it came to biblical exposition. But yet you say nothing about other people who may not have been so-called great exposition, but they stood for racial solidarity. They stood for social justice. That's why the church can never be unified. And it will never be unified because the white church needs to deal with their own sins of racism. Now, that's the black church got some problems. Oh, you better believe it. The black church have a lot of whore philandering preachers. We have a lot of snakes. We have a lot of prosperity profiteers that financially, emotionally rape women every Sunday. They rape their parishioners every week through these, um, through these um, shell-like church corporations, right? These uh, Bernie Madoff Ponzi schemes. A lot of black church has been overtaken by these Ponzi schemes and this emotional tidbit preaching, preaching to women's loneliness and needs and preaching to the black man's emotional problems. Yeah, the black church got problems. But the white church, your problems, I think, are much more bigger, buddy. We got to deal with that. That's the kick out from the Kick It Straight podcast. You can reach me on my social media, Jermaine Finley. Instagram, bad71man at gmail. And my Twitter, at Jermaine Finley. Questions, comments, my email is fenbn72 at yahoo.com. Questions, comments, negative, good, I don't care. I listen to it and you reply. Well, until the next time, be 